So the story so far for 2022, US rates have surged higher. That's put pressure on tech stocks. A rate hike is expected in March in the US with many more to come, with inflation hitting a 30-year high last week. They also had disappointing retail sales last month as well. And we've got supply chain disruption. That's not going away as China pursues its zero COVID policy and it now has Omicron to contend with. But elsewhere, there is hope of economic growth as those infection rates subside and the focus can be on recovery and managing inflation, of course. So welcome back to the morning call from NAB. It's Monday, the 17th of January, 2022. Good morning. Well, since we last spoke just before Christmas, the US dollar was sitting a little over 96 on the DXY index. Now it's down to 95.2, falling to 94.8 last week. The Aussie dollar, it's gone from a little over 72.6 just before Christmas. It got up over 73 late last week, uh, but lost a lot of ground on Friday, falling more than 1%. The strongest currency so far this year is sterling. It's up 1%, followed by the yen. Uh, We'll look at the reasons behind that shortly. Shares have risen, except for tech stocks, since that week before Christmas. But on Friday, actually, the opposite was the case. The Dow was down 0.6%. The Nasdaq was up 0.6%. And European shares also down at the end of the week. Eurostoxx 50 down over 1%. And the same at home with the ASX 200 losing about the same. And to show how significant Friday was, an eight basis point rise in 10-year treasuries in the US. In the last month, up 37 basis points. It's now at 1.78%. Some are predicting maybe over 2% before the end of the year. And inflation, is that the cause of it? Or is it just confidence in where the economy is in, is heading? We'll look at that today. Uh, inflation obviously uh, is not being held by oil. WTI was up 2% on Friday. While we've been away, it's gone from 73.80 up to 83.80. That's a 13.5% rise. So, just because we weren't here, <laughs> that clearly means stuff wasn't uh, was happening. Uh, so uh, let, let's catch up on it with uh, Ray Actual from from NAB in Sydney. So happy New Year, Ray. Same Inflation. to you and uh, all of our listeners. <laughs> Inflation up to seven percent in the US last week. That wasn't entirely unexpected, was it? But what was a surprise on Friday? Retail sales for December down one point nine percent month on month, despite Christmas. That came as a bit of a surprise, didn't it? I certainly did, but I think it sort of obviously exemplifies the extent to which you know the spread of the Omicron variant, which is pretty rampant in the US as it is in in many other parts of the world, has um, has really distorted economists' ability to forecast the numbers. Um, but certainly. Mm. You know, the latter half, it was only really sort of mid-December, wasn't it, that, um, you know, Omicron was really, you know, front and centre as far as the US is concerned. But the bite that it's taken out of um, consumer um, spending and also consumer confidence, so consumer confidence uh, set back to close to its decade-long lows as well in the preliminary January numbers that we also had on Friday. But um, so, yes, but, um, you know, if you look generally across markets, you, you know, on, on another day, you know, retail sales down, what, 2% in headline to almost 2% in headline terms, um, 3.1% down on their sort of what the core, what they call the control measure, um, you would have thought would have seen, you know, the bond market, um, you know, off to the races in terms of higher prices and lower yields, but, um, you know, far from it. Mm. So the juxtaposition of the retail sales numbers and uh, and the bond market, uh, continued bond market sell-off is is quite eye-opening, isn't it? So this this sell-off, is that because of inflation concerns or is it because there's, uh, you know, there's hope that the 
uh, we're, we're seeing a strong recovery this year and, and economists will actually be able to make more accurate predictions because we're going to see off this Omicron virus. Well, it's, it's pretty evident that optimism regarding um, not just the US economy, but the global economy, um, you know, is clearly very evident. And I think that obviously, the, you know, the scientific evidence as far as uh, the Omicron um, COVID strain is concerned in terms of both its severity, but also uh, the fact that, um, you know, it does seem that cases have, uh, you know, have peaked in the UK and South Africa and a few other places, even though hospitalisation rates, are, which are, I have to say, a little bit of a lagging indicator, are still, mm. you know, are still rising. But I think that gives markets, you know, a degree of optimism that, um, you know, they can see some light at the end of the tunnel in terms of how quickly we may come out of this wave and what that means for the global economy writing itself. And, you know, that's that's evident in, in you know, oil in particular, obviously, the numbers that you mentioned um, so far this year, that would not be happening if, uh, you know, there wasn't a degree of optimism about the demand side of the oil equation, um, you know, coming back into, into fine fettle, at least anyway. Um, but it's obviously the combination of that and, um, you know, incoming Fed speak, um, you know, and those who say that 7% in CPI inflation was expected, but still very eye opening. And clearly, you know, the Fed is making no bones about the need to be acting against it sooner rather than later, both as far yeah. as the timing of rates liftoff, but also, you know, the new the new news, if you like, since we broke up for Christmas is the the minutes of the December FOMC meeting, which have uh, lit the fuse under the idea of the Fed actually starting to shrink its balance sheet, so-called quantitative tightening, and, and potentially starting not long after rates lift off, which is now 90% price to occur in March. Well, that is interesting, isn't it? Because we were talking about that with Tapas just before Christmas, and when they've tried that in, before, there have been sort of quite profound economic consequences, because of course you are limiting the, you, when they reduce their, their balance sheet, they're actually reducing the uh, money supplies. So uh, it, it's quite a sharp impact, isn't it? It's, it's a bit of a shock treatment. No, it is. And uh, we've been, I've been uh, not claiming credit for doing the original research, <coughs> excuse me, but quite a lot of um, you know work has been done and academically and otherwise about exactly what the sort of equivalent impact of the Fed reducing its balance sheet or any central bank reducing its balance sheet. And, um, you know, so, you know, roughly speaking, a lot of the evidence is that, you know, if you reduce your balance sheet by, say, $600 billion, which is it's not inconceivable, you know, that that happens in the first year of a, a QT program, you know, that's certainly worth at least one rate rise, for example. And, you know, so I think mm. the sense is that, you know, the Fed may feel that the, the faster it gets on with the job of reducing the balance sheet, the less it may actually need to, to raise the Fed funds rate. So they clearly is some sort of a some sort of a trade-off there certainly and and the way they're going to do that presumably is they're just not going to uh, buy up reissued bonds when they when they reach maturity is that the natural way of progressing it well it's a very if we go back to the 2018-19 experience which is really the only one we've got of a sort of sustained qt program they, they tend to want to put this thing on autopilot so in any particular month, um, you know, there may be you know, enough bonds maturing, if you like, then they'll say, well, we're not going to, um, you know, we're effectively going to let those bonds run off. But there will be other months where there isn't enough happening. So what they'll do is they'll they'll put what are called caps on the extent of the, the balance sheet runoff, if you like. So they may start at. I don't know, $10 billion a month and lift that to $50 billion a month over the course of six months, for example. Um, and so, you know, they'll either, some months they'll be 
um, you know, the, the, effectively, the, depending on the maturity schedule, they'll smooth that out. And, and so what we'll see is an almost, you know, straight line down in the, in the rate at which the uh, the balance sheet is reducing. So obviously, we haven't got the details yet, but um, yeah. the market will be intensely interested in what just how fast is that process going to be? And as I say, you know, the faster it is, the more that it's equivalent to, uh, you know, a certain degree of interest rate uh, rises that may then not have to take place. Well, it does. It throws in another factor, doesn't it, to look out for at the uh, the meeting, which is next week, the twenty sixth of January, which yep. is the morning of the twenty seventh for us. So uh, we'll actually be here to uh, to cover it, even with Australia Day. But I mean, that word transient, uh, you know, that has completely disappeared now, hasn't it? So even people like Mary Daly from the uh, San Francisco Fed, uh, who is you know a more dovish Fed official, um, you know, she was saying uh, that inflation is not going to remedy itself. So they know they've got to do something, and uh, it sounds like they're going to be uh, doing quite a bit this year well that's right and um, I mean the market is now been a better priced for four quarter point rate rises than three and as I said 90% priced for that process to kick off in March obviously something can derail it go back to the 2015 uh, late December 2015 commencement of the tightening cycle and the Fed then had to wait almost a year partly because we had an intervening kind of big sell-off in, in China before they got the next one away but obviously the inflation backdrop back then was completely different to it is now so, um, you know, as, as I think Mary Day summed it up quite well, whether you think a lot of these current um, sources of high inflation are transitory or not, it's, it's going to take a, a lot. To, there clearly has to be some cooling of the demand side of the U.S. economic equation in order to, to get inflation down to, uh, to say, a 3% handle, let alone a 2% handle over the course of, uh, course of next year. And interestingly, we had a, a couple of comments. Um, Bill Ackman from Pershing Square was out on Friday saying he thinks the Fed should do a 50 basis point initial move as a shock and awe move to restore its credibility. We had Jamie Dimon from JP Morgan saying that he thinks the Fed could raise rates six or seven times this year and uh, you know, was, was going back and reminiscent of the, of the Volcker era and um, you know, when you know, a 200 basis point you know, one-off rate rise was, was not uncommon, for example. So, but, um, then, but it gets back to what we were saying before, they're not going to do that and reduce the size of the, uh, of the balance sheet at the same time, are they? It's no, I think it's, it's very unlikely. So I think that you know, the Fed set, mm-hmm. it, set it stall out with sort of quarter point increments but um yeah. you know certainly it's the interval between them that, that the markets are still going to be speculating on and uh, as i say and if it does come along ba- alongside balance sheet size i think you know quarter point moves are still far and away the best bet at the moment at least but we're still going to have supply chain problems here aren't we and then and maybe that's going to get worse now they've got omicron in china and they've still got that zero case uh, focus in in china and we know several cities are in full lockdown right so that could make supply chain constraints even worse couldn't it? And that could push inflation worse as well, presumably. No, absolutely. So, um, you know, that is that is definitely the risk. And, and obviously, just looking at the oil price, just the, the direct read-through from, uh, you know, although we tend to measure, um, you know, underlying inflation, you know, most usually defined as sort of ex-food and ex-energy. So that, um, but, you know, energy prices have a way of, of finding their way into core inflation um, through all sorts of mechanisms. So, um, you know, we can't dismiss the impact that this uh, big rise in oil that we've had so far this year, you know, is also going to have... Uh, in, in the weeks and the months ahead at least but um, certainly I think there's a general acceptance that these supply chain issues you know risk getting worse before they get better even though you know between you know Christmas and, 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 and the time of this recording there is some sort of evidence that supply chain pressures have started to ease back a little bit look at things like some of the prices paid um, sub-series and the PMIs for example and there is some evidence perhaps that uh, things are starting to ease off but uh, certainly down in this part of the world if you go into 
your local supermarket and look at the meat shelves, for example, um, there ain't a lot of it around. So it, it's, it's very evident. And this is mostly it's mostly logistics here. It's not the it's not the lack of uh, the lack of availability of uh, fresh fruit and vegetables, for example. It's um, it's the lack of, uh, of drivers to actually get it to get it to market because of uh, so many of them obviously are in isolation with uh, with Omicron. Okay. Well, we all eat too much meat anyway. So <laughs> it do us the world of good. And look, we get to China's uh, Q4 GDP number today as well. So it is, uh, I mean, that's going to tell us a bit. Is the Aussie dollar going to be sensitive to that? Well, we'd obviously had a little bit of a sell-off on uh, on Friday. I don't think it was related to that. And, and, uh, and generally, this has been, you know, for the most part, the evidence, and we had that in the credit numbers that we had um, last week and also in the, the PMI numbers that we've had uh, since the beginning of the year, uh, showing some evidence, at least, that China has succeeded in at least stabilising its growth rate in the face of the sort of the strong downward pressures that have come both from, as you say, the zero COVID uh, strategy, but also the fallout from the uh, from the from the private property sector, at least. But um, but the numbers that we get today, which are the final so Q4 GDP numbers, are expected to see the year on year growth rate down to something like 3.3 from 4.9 in Q3. And all of the monthly indicators that we'll get for retail sales, industrial production and fixed asset investment are all expected to be down in year on year terms relative to the November numbers. So um, that will be a reminder that, um, you know, even if some measures have been put in place, um, you know, the economy is still uh, is still you know, not firing on all cylinders, uh, to say the least. So, um, um, you right. know, if, if the numbers, you know, if they do come in weaker than expected, then the risk is that uh, Aussie could take a, a little bit of a hit. But we also, you know, it's pretty clear that this year, which is also the year that uh, President Xi intends to uh, cement his leadership for uh, for another five years or forever, that <laughs> um, uh, China is already putting the wheels in motion. And we've seen that through uh, certainly certain credit measures that they've taken, um, that mm. they will do whatever it takes, I think, to shore up growth. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's whether or not they can persist with the zero COVID strategy. And, uh, you know, realistically, looking at the end of the world, the answer would, would surely is no. Um, but then it's a question of, you know, rolling out booster shots, etc. as has been happening everywhere else in order to prevent the need for these uh, draconian uh, shutdowns with uh, Beijing, for example, had one case reported on Saturday and it's three weeks before the Winter Olympics. So yeah. um, does that mean they're going to shut Beijing down? Let's, uh, let's yeah, see. probably not, doesn't it? So, so, so we sort of, and we, I think feel like we're in a position where we understand even though there's going to be disruption over the next few months we we sort of know where we're heading because we know Omicron is less severe than Delta we know lots of people are getting it we know lots of people are off work with it I mean even Novak Djokovic is off work this week isn't he uh, but we <laughs> for a different reason but we also know it peaks fairly quickly so we can assume that at some point this year markets are going to return to normal these supply chain problems will disappear people will be back at work will be consuming the economy will be picking up again so what does that mean for the US dollar which is you know curious down lately and also what does it mean for the Aussie dollar when are we going to see that picking up because it it seems to have been struggling quite a bit hasn't it over the last month or so mm. well that the end I mean obviously the real sort of curio if you like so far this year has been the extent of the backup in US bond yields which reflects both as we're saying sort of optimism about the economy but also you know pricing in what the Fed is going to have to do relative to uh, to what it was looking like in early December and yet the US dollar is weaker um, and that's mm. a real contrast to the um, you know the 
know, the pattern for much of 2021, where every time US bond yields ratcheted higher, the US dollar went up. So, you know, we're doing a fair bit of head scratching at the moment on that. There is some evidence that, you know, traditionally the market tends to sort of buy the dollar in front of uh, the onset of Fed cycling type. Uh, Fed tightening cycles, excuse me, um, and then sort of sells off afterwards. So that maybe that the market is already kind of selling the news as far as uh, you know the, mm. the, the Fed tightening cycle that may only be you know a couple of months away. So that's one possibility at least. But um, you know we're not sort of throwing in the towel on our view that we thought that the dollar would be reasonably well supported in the early part of the year, and only when we see strong evidence that you know that the axis of global growth, if you like, is shifting a little bit away from the U.S., which really requires Europe in particular to pick up, which again requires the ability of the economy to be fully reopened. And that would be, you know, a, a story of dollar weakness. So what does it leave Aussie? I mean, our forecasts that we set out in December are for the currency to pretty much track within a 70 to 75 cent range for much of the first half of the year. And given where we've been in the first two weeks of the year, um, I have to say that forecast looks as good as any just at the moment. Well, we've got a bit more time probably tomorrow because uh, to talk about uh, the trends over the last few weeks because it's a fairly quiet day today. And then we've got uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day in the US, so the stock markets are closed and so are the bond markets. But it is a busy, busy week ahead, isn't it? We get CPI for the UK. It's the earnings season in the US. And at home, on the home front, we get consumer confidence uh, and labour force data for Australia. Mm-hmm. Yep, so plenty to look forward to. But uh, I think for today, at least, I think those, those China numbers probably watch. Be, uh, yeah. be front and centre. Good to talk again, Ray. We've, we've still got it. We still know how to do it. <laughs> we'll catch you again soon. Thank you. Will do. Thanks, Phil. And that's it. That's the morning call for this Monday morning from NAB. I'm Phil Dobby. Catch you again tomorrow morning. Thanks for listening.